From the McGrath Institute for Church Life and OSV Podcast, this is Church Life Today. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. By royal charter, St. Edmund's College is to take on the mission of advancing education, religion, learning, and research at the University of Cambridge, and to promote and facilitate contributions from the Catholic Church and from members of the Catholic Church in carrying out its endeavors. What is so remarkable about that mission is that since the Reformation, St. Edmund's is the first and still the only college at Cambridge with a Catholic founding. St. Edmund's is also a global college, with students coming from all across the world and graduates going to serve and lead everywhere. Today, I welcome the master of St. Edmund's College, who leads this distinctive institution of higher education in its service to the common good. Catherine Arnold is the 15th master of St. Edmund's College, having assumed the office in October 2019. Prior to her role at St. Edmund's, she served as the United Kingdom's ambassador to Mongolia. Ambassador Arnold's diplomatic career has also included service in Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and Oman, with particular focus on a range of issues including human rights, counterterrorism, trade, and public affairs. Her conversation with me comes as she visits the University of Notre Dame as part of a new agreement between the two institutions to encourage and support international collaboration between the respective faculties, scholars, students, and administrators in education, research, and outreach. Catherine Arnold, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed for having me, Lenny. St. Edmund's College is the only college at Cambridge with a post-Reformation Catholic founding. In terms of the history of Cambridge and maybe also of the UK, I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a little bit about the significance of the founding of St. Edmund's. Of course. For several centuries within the United Kingdom, people who were not of the established Anglican Church were legally excluded from aspects of public life. This began to be unwound about 200 years ago, and one of the last of what we call the Test Acts, a test, a religious test, the Test Acts, was the Test Act um, removal of 1871, which for the first time in several centuries allowed Roman Catholics and other religious minorities full participation in the life of Oxford and Cambridge. So incredible as it seems today, um, only around, well, under 200 years ago, uh, some religious minorities were legally excluded from full participation in our two uh, oldest universities' life. So 1871, the Test Act is repealed. St. Edmund's is founded in 1896. What happens between the two? Mm. And I think this, for me, is, is very interesting and also continues to inform who we are as a college. The first is that our founders, Baron Anatole von Hugel and Father Edmund Nolan, had to convince the bishops and the Holy See that it was appropriate for Catholic scholars and those who wished to be Catholic priests to come to a secular university. And they were working with some of the great Catholic thinkers of the time, such as Cardinal Newman, um, in order to make this case, which indeed they eventually um, secured support for the establishment of a Catholic house for scholars, principally Catholic priests, mm. to access the secular university. But meanwhile, there was the university. And there was a strong sentiment in the late 19th century that those with an explicit 
religious persuasion would strangle free thought. Mm-hmm. And that the role of the, the academy was to decouple itself from a priori um, perspectives of the world. And so our founders also had to convince the University of Cambridge that having an explicitly Catholic foundation would not undermine the academic and intellectual credibility of the university. And again, they won that argument. But that's why it took at least 25 years before we were able to be founded. And they did, I think, in in doing so, made a very strong case, both to the church and to the university, that bringing together um, faith and reason benefits both parties and doesn't undermine either. I'm very interested in this. The sort of persuasion that had to take place on both sides. On the one hand, as you said, with the church to convince bishops and others of the permissibility, even the advisability of having some of their students, seminarians and others uh, involved in the endeavors of a secular university. And on the other hand, to persuade the university leaders that uh, this was the appropriate place for those with a religious conviction. I assume very much that that wasn't a one-time and done uh, sort of conversation. I wonder if you see and still feel some of the tension of that um, in the college today or just across the landscape landscape of higher education. How do you think this conversation or this tension uh, continues today between the university and the church? I mean, I think that's an exceptionally good question and a very broad one. So my very simple answer would be that day to day, in the three years that I have been master of St. Edmund's, I have never explicitly encountered any prejudice towards Mm. uh, both the the Roman Catholic um, founding of the college, the fact that we remain the only college in Oxford and Cambridge with a Roman Catholic dean and chapel. I've never found any negative sentiment towards that. Um, Because of the nature of our founding, we have also, um, for many years now, established ourselves as the place in which um, new boundaries are broken down. So we were the first formerly all-male college, for example, to take women. Um, And we now run a series of scholarship programs for religious minorities within the United Kingdom Mm. beyond um, the Roman Catholic and Christian faith. And so there is a sense within the college very deeply that we are, as an institute, comfortable with faith and we are comfortable with the concept of higher purpose and the need to work together for the common good. And I use that language quite carefully because part of our mission is to be capacious Mm. in a global world. And therefore, for those who express their um, Catholic faith in specifically Catholic terms, there is absolutely space within the college um, for them. But we don't want to exclude those from other faiths and no faith. And so this concept of, of service, higher purpose and the common good are ones which we feel very, very comfortable with now. In answer to your question, why does that make us different? I don't think there's anyone in Cambridge who would say that they aren't there to serve some higher purpose. But I do think that we are more comfortable with people's expression of faith as an identity and the way it informs uh, the frameworks through which they conduct their research and the ways in which they would see the benefits of their research in the world. That sounds very loose and woolly, but I think it is important because in the ancient universities in the UK, um, there is a sense that knowledge is of value for itself. Yes. 
And therefore, although I don't see anyone um, ever saying that there is an issue with this translation into service of the thinking that is done, I think we are particularly comfortable as a college with expressing that as part of the very ethos of why we are here and why we are in the academy and why we are educating the next generation of thinkers and actors because a lot of our students won't go on to be academics. They'll right. go on to leadership roles around the world in every conceivable sector. And so for us, it's instilling them with this sense of service, this sense of undergirding ethic, so that in whatever way they can, in whatever culture they can, in whatever faith they can, they will be giving back to the common good. Speaking of your students, as I understand it, St. Edmunds is an incredibly global college, if I'm not mistaken, the most global college of the colleges at Cambridge. Is that correct? When students come to you, what do you find in general that they're looking for? Why are they drawn uh, to St. Edmunds in particular? It's a lovely question. And I always love hearing the answers because they are always as varied as the number mm. of people we have. We have somewhere around 720 students and we're a total community of around 1,000, which is fairly standard within, within Cambridge. Um, and you're right. Every single year, we welcome a minimum of 75 different nationalities. Wow. And we are mature, which means that all of our students, including our undergraduates, are over 21, which means that people are bringing um, a slightly more reflective and considered perspective on the world yes. um, than is the case sometimes in some student um, bodies. They've, they've already had three years, four years more away from, from home and have started to reflect on who they are and what their role in the world is. Um, and we also are the only mature college in Cambridge to offer every degree course in Cambridge. So what I'm really trying to say uh -huh. is there is this phenomenal concentration of diversity. And as somebody who spent nearly all of my life um, in different countries around the world, when I first stood before the assembled masses of our new students and realized that in one space for a minimum of nine months and up to which is the length of a master's course in the UK, up to four years, which is the length of a PhD course in the UK, we were going to have these incredible minds coming together to have transformative conversations. I realized that I had never been anywhere in my life, cosmopolitan as I thought I had been, <laughs> where there was this level of diversity within a space in which people are open to exploration. If you sit in the UN, which is probably more diverse, we were all there to some extent with an agenda which precludes certain conversations or challenges certain conversations. Whereas in an academic higher educational establishment, there is a ripeness, a willingness to listen in order to understand, in order eventually to better influence um, the, the role and the leadership positions that you will take. So that for me is what makes it special. And what makes it even more special was when we did uh, uh, a bottom up um, exercise in which we were asking people to tell us the story of self mm. and then the story of us, what was profoundly coming through was this extraordinary excitement that everyone had for these diversities that, that, that are there and the ability to explore the other. One person said, how on earth can I feel different when everyone's different? Mm. So that immediate sense of acceptance and welcome, which was exactly what our founders wanted to achieve for an excluded Roman Catholic minority. But then also, where else in the world can I explore such a concentration of difference, was what somebody else said to me, one of our students from Nigeria. And I think that 
is amazing when the students in different voices and in different ways speak to exactly the same concept, that this is a unique moment in most people's lives to explore the world's diversity on a human scale. Mm. These students that you gather from all over and this rich experience of diversity and the openness to thought and inquiry, seeking knowledge for its own sake, but also to be leaders of impact. As you send forth these students with whatever degree they have pursued and they leave St. Edmund's into whatever comes next, what are some of your hopes for them? What do you hope that they have encountered and they take with them? What, in other words, might mark a St. Edmund's graduate? I probably come at this from a very particular perspective, having been a diplomat for many years. Mm -hmm. And as I say, even before I became a diplomat growing up overseas, I think one of the things that struck me when I first joined the Foreign Office, which is the UK's um, diplomatic service, was it was the first time I had ever worked or been somewhere where everyone was British. Sounds self-evident, <laughs> but it was the first my first experience of that. And although the Foreign Office is a very diverse organisation in terms of what that means to be British... Um, it was striking to me that some of the things that I had taken for granted as somebody who'd grown up overseas couldn't be taken for granted for many of the younger diplomats I was mentoring. And what I noticed over the years was that it probably takes somewhere between five and ten years for an open-minded, um, intelligent, curious person to begin to feel comfortable, hopefully never at ease, because that's dangerous, mm -hmm. comfortable with conceptions of profound difference. The fact that, mm -hmm. that different cultures, different faiths, different countries can have profoundly different undergirding values that will mean they see different answers and different consequences to problems that are shared. But also there's a point where you go beyond that and realize that undergirding everything is a common humanity. But actually to lead today in a complex global world in which we see fragmentation everywhere. Walls are going up and wars are starting. My hope for the next 50 years or 100 years is that the talented, brightest and best who are coming to universities like Notre Dame and to Cambridge are able to ask the right questions so that they can listen to difference in order to better understand what is motivating others in order that when they come to lead, they can truly influence and bring people together across divides. Because if we can't do that, if we can't speak and resonate with people who don't think the same way as us, then I have fears for the world going in the next 50 to 100 years. Mm -hmm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with Catherine Arnold, Master of St. Edmund's College at the University of Cambridge, St. Edmund's is unique among the colleges at Cambridge as the only one with a Catholic founding after the Reformation. Speaking of these hopefully global leaders that are coming from a college like St. Edmund's, you're mentioning some of the characteristics or traits that you would hope uh, these leaders would take forth with them, this willingness and openness to listen deeply to difference, to find other ways of seeing and thinking, and to move towards understanding with that. I want to just open up the space to talk a little bit more about these characteristics, maybe some of some of the characteristics that you've come to prize over the years, especially through your extensive international experience in these global leaders. What do you think is most important uh, for global leaders in today's world that you want to help prepare, especially these younger people, to become those leaders? 
There was a wonderful quote that the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, once gave, um, where, to paraphrase, he said, I believe I'm right. Mm. And I think he said that in counterpoise to I know I'm right. And I think that is probably the greatest skill of a leader is the intellectual humility to be able to say, I really passionately believe this, but there may still be something else I need to hear. Um, and that is what I would like to instill in mm. the students of St. Edmund's. And there's a prayer that we give at um, the uh, opening ceremony for all of our students, which is the prayer of St. Edmund. And that is, give us, I'm now going to have to try and remember it, sorry. Um, uh, help us to have no fear before new truth. Mm. No complacency before half-truth and remove from us the pride that would destroy all truth. I want to think also, therefore, about ethical leaders. So we're talking about leaders in a global space and on the global stage, um, those who go forth from St. Edmund's to all corners of the world, different forms of industry and government and whatnot. But in order for these leaders to be truly ethical leaders, to have a grounding and a standing in a conviction towards truth and towards uh, seeking a common good, I wonder about the challenges in a diverse setting, let's say like St. Edmund's, but also in a pluralistic world where ethics can't always be taken for granted. It's not the question necessarily of ethical or unethical. It's sometimes the question of whose ethics, with yeah. which ethics. Grounded on what? Starting from where? How do you wrestle with this at St. Edmund's, especially in the kind of environment, learning environment you're hoping to create for your students, and also the kind of environment that they're going into in a pluralistic world where these truth claims, let's say, can't be taken for granted? I mean, it's an exceptionally good question. And the shortest answer is, this is not easy. <laughs> And I actually think this is where one of the many reasons I'm so excited about the partnership between St. Edmund's College and Notre Dame, because this has been the mission of Notre Dame, the mission of the Holy Cross um, for well over 150 years, mm. nearly 200 years. And I therefore think there is much that we can learn from you in terms of, uh, to use the blessed Basil Moreau's um, words, to train the heart that the things that the mind may be thinking about will change over the course of the centuries. Um, but the way that we train the heart is timeless. Mm. And I think giving people a sense of foundational ethics, or even for those for whom that is never going to be a principal interest, exposure to what that might mean practically so for some of our students who come from a from a faith background, they will have had a lifetime being steeped in the ethic of that faith. For some of our students, um, that may not have been their reality. But to bring people together, we have a um, an institute within St. Edmund's College called the Von Hugel Institute, which is an advanced institute of critical Catholic inquiry. And the director of that program, uh, who was here at Notre Dame before, Dr. Vittorio Montemaggi, ran a series for students on the concept of forgiveness, mm. in which he brought together people from different faith perspectives 
to who are academics in that space to explore what forgiveness meant within that tradition, but then simply opened it up to the student body who attended to ask them what they thought forgiveness meant in their life, enabling people who may never have asked themselves the question that way to begin to articulate what they thought. And one of the things I've always found is that whatever the subject is, quite often, it's only when you start to speak that you realize the questions that you never asked. Ah. And that's the starting point for a journey. And so really practically within the college, we've created a framework which we are beginning to turn into a program. It's work in progress and I've certainly been having some very enriching conversations um, while I'm here at Notre Dame for things that we can learn from you or, or areas of partnership, which we're calling the Thrive Programme. Um, and the basic principle is that we want all of our students and all of our academics to thrive. And because everyone loves a good acronym, um, Thrive <laughs> is an acronym. And Thrive stands for trust, higher purpose, resilience, imagination, voice and enjoyment. And effectively, we will have some very, very light touch interventions. This is not a credit program. That isn't how the UK system works. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, a voluntary program that just is infused within to the life of the college um, as part of their experience of Cambridge University, where their academic um, studies will be done in the university, which will just help to bring to those aspects of the four. And even if each student only touches two or three of those, hopefully they'll go across Thrive, even if they only touch two or three of those, some of those ethical undergirdings and those questions will remain with them. And that very simply, we want to prepare our students, often psychologically, for positive encounter with difference, because that can be scary. Sometimes we don't have the psychological tools to enable us to listen because listening can be a threatening position to be mm -hmm. in. Sometimes it's appropriate to listen, sometimes it's not appropriate to listen, but we need to be able to prepare our students psychologically to have positive encounter with difference so that they can then go on to act. So it's a prepare, encounter, act theory that sits above our Thrive framework. You've mentioned this partnership with Notre Dame. I wonder if you might speak to that a little bit. Um, this is a, a new partnership. You're here actually at the university, I, I believe on your first visit. Um, how did this partnership come about? What were maybe some of the interests on your side? What, what, how did these conversations develop and what are you looking forward to in the partnership? Gosh, there's a lot there, Lenny. I know, you don't um, have to do everything, No, no, but that's absolutely bit. fine. I mean, look, I'm just incredibly excited about mm. it. And the relationship between St. Edmunds and Notre Dame goes back many, many years, mm. unsurprisingly, because of our common um, Catholic um, ethos. And many of the academics from the Von Hugel Institute, this Institute of Advanced Catholic Critical Inquiry that I mentioned, have had academic collaborations with people from multiple different faculties within Notre Dame. And with the arrival of um, our director, uh, Vittorio Montemaggi, with his strong links into to the, um, to Notre Dame, um, he helped us to realize that there was potentially far more that we could be doing together, that mm. the undergirding principles that I, coming in from having been a, a diplomat, was trying to achieve with our academics for our students and our community were so incredibly aligned with the mission and mandate of Notre Dame. Mm. Um, this sense of service, this sense of um, common purpose, this sense of voracious, um, highly academically credible um, research, but with the question of, 
to what end yes. always being firmly in people's minds and that it is both about the ways of um, thinking uh, academically, but also the ways of thinking as an educational mm. organization. I suppose you should worry that the partnership is really just an attempt for us to steal Vittorio back from you, <laughs> back to Notre Dame. Which is... I think we can share him. <laughs> okay. my, my school of diplomacy is one where the pie gets bigger. <laughs> okay, very well, very well. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with Catherine Arnold, Master of St. Edmund's College at the University of Cambridge. Maybe just a couple more things, if you don't mind. I'd love to talk a little bit about religion and diplomacy, because I think for many people, the impression is that religion gets in the way of good diplomacy. It's something to be sidelined. It's perhaps more a an occasion for disagreement and for disengagement than it is uh, in the service of true peacemaking. Do you find a positive role? Have you found a positive role for religion in diplomacy? And if so, what is it? It's a lovely question. I'm going to give you a slightly flippant answer. Great. Um, when you grow up in the UK, there are two subjects you're always told that no one talks about at a polite dinner party, one of which is politics and the other is religion. Yes. Precisely because both can be so exceptionally divisive. And I've asked you a question that brings in both. Well, you have. And so my <laughs> response to the diplomats has always been, if we talk about politics which is so divisive. Right. And obviously we do, because that's the role of a diplomat. Why would we not talk about religion? Mm. So, I mean, it's a very flippant answer to a very deep question, but I, but I deliberately use it because um, the world is exceptionally complicated. So to remove an, an important part of people's identity and the way that people perceive the world and the way that people take decisions and indeed even what people think the good is from the conversation, just because it's complicated. And I agree with you, by the way, that quite often that is why diplomats put religion to one side, mm -hmm. um, is not good enough. And so my question throughout the entirety of my diplomatic career is, why are we doing this? And I concluded that it isn't usually because people have collapsed religion into another version of economics or another version of politics by proxy, which can be a very easy thing to do. Right. And there can be a sense that that's what uh, diplomats, particularly from countries which tend to be uh, present themselves as fairly secular, which the UK and, and many countries in Europe do. Um, I think it is because we are not intellectually armed with the tools that we need to ask the right questions so that we can listen and understand and therefore influence and understand when it is appropriate to bring in uh, people with a faith perspective as uh, practitioners of that faith, when it's appropriate to link a faith perspective with a political um, mandate. We don't know, we're not comfortable and therefore it's easier not to do it. But it is, in my view, a failure if we don't do it. When you consider that in the majority of the countries of the world, the leadership and the people that those leaders are leading are profoundly influenced by a faith mm. in terms of the very things that they value. And if you see a theory of politics being delivery of values to a population, you've got to understand what those are, whether those are economic um, in terms of rights or in terms of uh, a religious perception. And that doesn't mean to say 
that you simply listen to what the religious leaders say and take that as, as, as read any more than you would listen to political leaders and take that as read. But you have to listen, you have to understand, and then you have to find where those commonalities are and indeed where the points that seem to be irreconcilable are to see whether there are actually um, at a deeper level uh, commonalities or indeed if one needs to part company and disagree. Mm. Maybe here at the end, I'd love to, if you if you wouldn't mind, telling us a little bit about why you accepted this appointment. Mm. Um, your history, as you said, in diplomacy uh, and work across the globe. Um, now to take up this leadership role at an institute of higher education, what were your interests in this position? I think the reason I took the role and the reason it fascinates me now are not necessarily the same. So I'll give you a pithy version of the two. The reason I took this role was I realized that for well over a decade, I had been representing my country. I had been ambassador as my last overseas role and my next overseas role, I would have wished for it to be another ambassadorship. And I realized I'd been out of the country for so long that I didn't really understand the country that I was in. And that's dangerous. And so I was looking for a role within the United Kingdom in which I could begin to better understand um, my own country. And some, particularly in the UK, might say you've gone from one elite institution to another elite institution. How on earth is that actually understanding the, re the realities of the country? But I don't think that's true. Um, the students that come through Cambridge come from all walks of life and from across the UK. And by virtue of being so intellectually talented, are exceptionally coherent in articulating their view of where they came from and their view of where they would like the UK to go. So that was really what motivated me. I think what... Um, my passion since arriving at St. Edmund's and truly feeling that internationalism has been what I've described already, this sense that um, I actually believe that we as a college have a moral duty to help form these exceptional people who will go on to take decisions that will affect millions of people across the globe and help them to have the intellectual frameworks and capabilities to, as I've said time and time again, do this serious listening in order to understand, in order to influence, because the world is fragmenting. Um, and that is a problem for billions of people across mm -hmm. the world. And therefore, if there is anything that we can do at St. Edmund's or in our collaboration with Notre Dame to help those future leaders um, think more acutely about the other whom they will affect and to bring us closer together, then I think we have an obligation to do that. Well, I cannot thank you enough for sharing this time with us today and engaging this conversation. Um, I think I probably speak on behalf of many uh, to say how excited I am about this partnership between Notre Dame and St. Edmunds and the way in which somewhat selfishly, this partnership will enrich us in our own mission, and hopefully that those gifts will be reciprocated uh, very much. So thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. And I mean, the excitement about the partnership goes both ways. And I think for me, going back to values is at a superficial level, um, one can have partnerships that lead to immediate term benefits for both parties. But there's nothing more exciting than when values align. And mm. I think the value driven mission of the Holy Cross for its entire history of its order is so aligned with what we're seeking to do at St. Edmund's that there feels like 
levels of conversation we don't even need to have because we're already past that point. And that's really exciting. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. And I hope that the rest of your stay here at the university is very rich and it will be followed by another trip before too long. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.